Welcome back to Millennial Mental Health. I'm Stephanie Contra O'Hara, licensed professional counselor. Today we're going to do part two of the eating disorder podcast. Um, As promised from the last one, I'm going to go into defining each of the diagnoses um, as well as maybe clarify anything that wasn't fully discussed in part one. It's important to know that eating disorders come on a wide spectrum. Um, So even if someone doesn't qualify for a diagnosable eating disorder by the DSM-5 standards, if someone is struggling with one or two of the symptoms, that's still important to address, um, whether that's through support network of friends, joining a support group, or going to therapy. And this is going to be more of an educational video. So it's important to remember that all of my videos in this series are meant for educational purposes and not a substitute for actual treatment. Okay, so first thing I'm going to dive into is a diagnosis um, and explanation for each one. So anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder marked by intentional food deprivation. People with this disorder will neglect to eat or eat excessively small portions of food. Um, This is out of the desire to lose and maintain weight, even when they become dangerously underweight. Anorexia can affect people of all ages, genders, sexual orientations, race, and ethnicities. Historians and psychologists have found evidence of people displaying symptoms of anorexia for hundreds or even thousands of years. While it by no means is universally look like a lean body, it is seen in many cultures to be a picture of health and beauty. Unfortunately, as most people who are listening to this probably already know, you know, in the West, thin, lean, white bodies have been put up on a pedestal to be signs of health and beauty. So there has been a lot of uh, research kind of around this specific diagnosis due to its prevalence. Unfortunately, even after someone with anorexia has lost weight, they may continue to see themselves as overweight since they've internalized a negative self-image. Although the disorder most frequently begins during adolescence, an increasing number of children and adults are also being diagnosed with anorexia. It can be difficult to identify someone with anorexia by just looking at them. A person does not need to be emancipated or underweight to be struggling. Studies have found that larger bodied individuals can also have this disorder, although they may be less likely to be diagnosed due to the cultural presence prejudice against fat and obesity. Cause of anorexia are varied and complex from social pressure by someone's culture to maintain an unrealistic standard of body size and weight to suffering abuse as a child and parental neglect. Someone may inherit this disorder from a parent since 25 to 50% of people with anorexia are shown to have parents with this disorder. Someone with gastrointestinal disease is more likely to develop anorexia since they already have difficulties maintaining weight. For an effective diagnosis, it is essential to thoroughly examine someone to identify how their disorder has developed. Um, There is no single single treatment for anorexia that has proven to be 
effective. The earlier the disorder is identified, the better. But combination of treatments can be used to help people cope. This ranges from needing to change diets to family-based therapy to individual therapy. Sometimes psychiatry is also needed. Really having a well-established treatment team who are very familiar with what it looks like to treat someone with an eating disorder is super important. All right, bulimia is the next one I'm going to dive a little bit further into in defining. Bulimia is a serious and potentially life-threatening eating disorder characterized by a cycle of binging followed by methods of purging. These include self-induced vomiting and misuse of laxatives. The latter is meant to compensate for guilt associated with eating and to keep off weight. Symptoms of bulimia are characterized by these traits, eating oversized portions of food within a discrete period of time, usually within a two-hour period. A sense of lack of control over eating during the episode, such as an inability to control what is being consumed. Reoccurring and destructive behaviors to prevent weight gain, such as self-induced vomiting, diuretics, fasting, or excessive exercise. The excessive use of dietary supplements or herbal products to encourage weight loss and the preoccupation with someone's body and shape. Typically, those diagnosed with bulimia engage in these behaviors once a week for a period of three months at a minimum to be considered like DSM-5 diagnosable. If you or someone you love acts on these behaviors, it is crucial to seek out care for a mental health provider. Like with most eating disorders, it can be very useful to approach with support network with coping skills to help someone with bulimia. Like most eating disorders, the danger of bulimia is not limited to the extreme weight loss. It can also lead to other health problems, dehydration, which can lead to medical problems like kidney failure, heart problems such as irregular heartbeat or heart failure, severe tooth decay, absent or irregular periods. This is common with anorexia as well. Um, anxiety, depression, or personality disorders, self-injury, and suicidal thoughts. So all of those, again, ones that I just mentioned also have commonality to exist in other eating disorders. So it's not limited to bulimia. Avoidant restrictive food intake, or also known as RFED. This is a newly defined eating disorder. I would say in the past 10 years, it has become more prevalently diagnosed and talked about. So RFED is similar to anorexia in that both disorders involve limiting the amount of food and or types of food consumed. Unlike anorexia, however, our fed doesn't involve any distress about body shape, size, or fear of weight gain. Instead, our fed is an eating disorder where someone is utterly disgusted by one or more food groups, even when they are aware that these food items contain essential nutrients. The person will refuse to eat the food item and subsequently starve their bodies of, of vitamins and minerals. It is most common in children, but there are some cases where RFED is affecting young adults. Although many children display behaviors of selective eating, someone with RFED pushes this refusal to a different level or to an extreme. By doing so, they can cause conditions such as malnutrition, anemia, cognitive disabilities. Consequently, these conditions can affect someone's education in school or their ability to work effectively. 
as mentioned a little bit before, ARFID is most common in children, but it's also associated with people with autism spectrum, including those with ADHD and intellectual disorders, people with co-occurring anxiety disorders, and those at high risk for other psychiatric disorders. So this is kind of like extreme pickiness. I'm sure we've all heard of kids who, you know, will only eat white foods or will only eat chicken nuggets and pizza. This is something similar to that, but again, taken to another extreme. Binge eating is the next disorder I'm going to dive a little bit into. So binge eating is a severe eating disorder characterized by episodes of consuming large amount of foods, often within a small amount of time. In a sense, it is the opposite of anorexia nervosa since the person is intentionally over consuming to the point of discomfort. It is the most common eating disorder in the United States. The symptoms of binge eating include a feeling of loss of control during a binge, feelings of shame, distress, or guilt after a binge, not using unhealthy measures to lose the meal, such as purging. So it doesn't have any purging a part of it, which makes it different from the bulimia, as mentioned earlier. Eating more quickly than normal, sometimes to the point of choking, eating when someone is not hungry, and eating alone due to embarrassment at how much someone eats in a meal. So oftentimes people could have a tendency to hoard food in binge eating disorder. They may take food from the kitchen and hide it in their rooms to eat in a way where their family won't find out or their partner won't find out. Sometimes in adults, they will go to their cars to eat their lunch so they can eat without feeling like onlookers are aware of their behaviors. For someone to be diagnosed with binge eating, they're usually binging at least once a week for three months at a minimum. The health risks of binge eating disorder are those commonly associated with clinical obesity and weight cycling, such as high blood pressure, heart conditions, diabetes, osteoporosis, arthroarthritis, among others. Most people who are clinically obese don't have binge eating disorder. However, two-thirds of the individuals with binge eating disorder are clinically obese. The other one-third tend to be normal or higher than average weight, though binge eating disorder can be diagnosed at any weight. Okay, so the next one is PICA. So PICA is an eating disorder that involves eating items not typically thought of as food that do not offer any like significant nutrition, depending on what is consumed that can lead to other health complications, such as child who might eat lead paint, developing brain damage from lead poisoning, or someone eating metal objects that clog their digestive tracts. PICA most commonly happens in pregnant women, small children, and other people who have developmental disabilities, such as autism. PICA has also been linked to other mental health and emotional disorders that are caused by emotional trauma, parental neglect, and family issues. People with PICA can be identified more easily if they eat a particular item, which can range from dust, sharp objects, stones, wood, or metal. If you suspect a friend or a loved one has PICA, it's best to observe their eating habits closely since they may consume these indigestible items discreetly. If this behavior continues for at least one month, this person is considered diagnosable with PICA. Unfortunately, this is one of those diagnoses that's pretty sneaky. Like 
unless you witness someone eating objects that are non-food objects. They usually do it in secrecy and there's a lot of shame around it, especially if they're cognitive of what they're doing. Unfortunately, it does lead to death sometimes if obstruction occurs or they ingest something that would be poisonous for them to consume. It's kind of like this insatiable behavior and hunger where they just find themselves eating things that most people would identify as non-food items. Treatment for PICA includes finding out whether or not they suffer from mineral deficiencies and trying to address any biological needs through diet changes. Aversion and exposure therapy has also known to work, as well as substituting indigestible with foods like popcorn or oral stimulators like gum. Pika may be caused out of a desire for attention, and in these cases, fulfilling emotional contact can work too. All right, the next one is rumination disorder. Rumination disorder involves the regurgitation of food that occurs at least once a month. Regurgitation of food may be rechewed, re-swallowed, and spit out. Typically, when someone regurgitates their food, they do not appear to be making an effort, nor do they appear to be stressed out or disgusted. Symptoms of this disorder include bad breath, weight loss, stomach aches or indigestion, tooth decay, dry lips, or mouth. They may be confused with acid reflux, but there are a few key differences. For one thing, rumination typically occurs shortly after eating, while acid reflux is a nightly occurrence. Another difference is that the acid reflux primarily affects the throat, while rumination affects the mouth. Most importantly, this disorder does not respond to treatments for acid reflux or GERD. There are a variety of treatments. Like many eating disorders, changing learned behaviors is essential. This can be coupled with diaphragmatic breathing training, where the person learns how to control their diaphragm. Improving one's posture during and after meals can help reduce stress while eating as well. So there can be medical reasons why someone is engaging in this behavior, but there's also like social emotional reasons why someone could be engaging in this behavior. So that's important to distinguish as well. So that you might find that a speech therapist could help with a more medically induced rumination. Okay, so diabulimia is the next eating disorder that I'm gonna work on defining. And this is very typical with people with type one diabetes which is actually what the dia part of diabulimia stands for is diabetes. So people with type 1 diabetes have usually lower insulin or don't have any insulin production at all. Unfortunately, this eating disorder isn't formally recognized by the medical and psychiatric communities, but diabulimia is shockingly common. As many as one-third of women with T1 reports insulin restrictions with higher levels among those between the ages of 15 and 30. Symptoms of diabulimia include excessive thirst, frequent urination, high blood glucose levels, and low sodium levels. In more extreme cases, this is this disorder can lead to muscle atrophy, GERD, high cholesterol, and in the long-term severe kidney damage, vision problems, and nerve damage to the hands and feet. The treatment for this disorder is done by cognitive behavioral therapy, 
by identifying why patients desire to lose weight um, and hopefully help them figure out a way to be motivated to maintain a healthy level of insulin injections. Okay, so that was the definitions and descriptions of the most major eating disorders that are either recognized by the DSM-5 or the eating disorder community. So I'm going to dive a little bit into treatments and coping skills next. By no means is this list completely comprehensive, but it's definitely a good start. So there's a wealth of research that has been devoted to eating disorders due to their prevalence and the danger they impose on people. Evidence suggests that one of the best treatments for an eating disorder is to build a support network who can help the patient during this difficult time by working with a medical doctor, psychiatrist, registered dietitian, a family therapist, and loved ones, the chance for recovery can be much higher. Unfortunately, a lot of people, especially adults, end up going through eating disorder treatments alone since there is so much shame associated with it. They may only have a medical team and not necessarily support from loved ones, which is why support groups are so important. So even if you can't find support and love within your family, you could hopefully find it in support groups. Here in Denver, Colorado, there's an organization called the Eating Disorder Foundation, and they do a great job at allowing other people from different parts of the world access to their virtual support groups. So that could also be a substitute for someone who may not have the family support that is needed in order to be able to enter into recovery. While a patient copes with their condition, it's important for the patient support group to be sensitive while discussing their weight and appearance um, in order to help show empathy and respect and to provide information in a format that's suitable to the patient. This can leave a patient in a more clear state of mind and thus able to hopefully focus on their internal conflicts rather than having to face external conflicts or have to overcome other cultural conflicts that may be reinforcing their eating disorder. It's important to remember that entering into treatment can be scary, but if you're not alone and hopefully you have supportive family members, um, or a community, it can really make a difference, as I mentioned. There are nonprofits that hopefully can help support people. Um, as I mentioned, the Eating Disorder Foundation here in Denver, Project HEAL, Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders, and Alliance for Eating Disorder Awareness. And hopefully all of those nonprofits can guide you to find more information that you might need. I have shared throughout this mini series how anxiety really impacts a person's mental health and eating disorders are no different. I think it's important to acknowledge how common these diagnoses and these disorders are. Millions of Americans are affected by eating disorders and normalizing their experiences. We can hopefully help them cope better and be able to reach out to their family and friends and health professionals for support. It's important to remember that a person with an eating disorder isn't going to be just fixed by changing their diet. It's not a matter of just like eating more, eating less, or don't eat that and eat this. It really is a complete like emotional 
and mental change that needs to be created in order to break the, the cycle of an eating disorder. And it's important to remember that those people are struggling and that they can have a life that's worth living um, outside of their eating disorder. Hopefully this information has been helpful for everyone. And it's important to know that bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Size alone does not determine health. If you want to know more about eating disorders, there's definitely a wealth of knowledge available. I definitely recommend the book Health at Every Size by Lindo Bacon, Life Without Ed by Jenny Schaefer, and Intuitive Eating by Elise Reich and Evelyn Turbel. Hopefully I pronounced everybody's name properly. I have personally read all of those books and have found them to be very insightful and informational. So I definitely encourage everyone to also pick those up who wants to know more about eating disorders. Um, I'll definitely be talking about eating disorders again on this podcast, just because that is my main focus. So I just wanted to leave everyone today with a little bit more information about them. And hopefully you'll continue to tune in um, to learn more about anxiety, learn more about eating disorders, potential treatments, and how these conditions develop in our current social and cultural world. Like, I wish that everyone had mental health in the forefront of their mind. As a mental health therapist, I think it's really important in order to have a healthy society and a healthy community. And I just wanted to impress upon the importance of accepting others, helping other people be heard. A lot of times that's where a lot of these diagnoses develop out of is a place of feeling alone or unheard or not cared about and trying to cope with those. And oftentimes the way people cope with them is in an unhealthy way since they're unfamiliar with healthier ways. You only know what you know. You can't know more than what you've never been taught or never been told about, which is another reason why I think me sharing this information on these podcasts are so important. And I hope you continue to listen and tune in. And I look forward to speaking with you all next time.